celebrated animator, writer, and director Nick Park, best known as the creator of beloved characters such as Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep, is our guest on today's episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen podcast series. His latest film, Early Man, is a prehistoric era set comedy featuring Caveman Doug, voiced by Eddie Redmayne. It recently earned seven Annie Award nominations, including Best Animated Feature and Best Director for Park. Welcome to Behind the Screen. Park, of the UK's world-famous stop-motion studio Ardman Animations, is a four-time Oscar winner for animated feature Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and animated shorts Creature Comforts, The Wrong Trousers, and A Close Shave. Nick, welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Ardman Animations was founded in 1972. Let's start with reviewing a bit of its history. Oh, yeah. Well, Ardman has existed since the sort of mid-70s, which was Peter Lord and David Sproxton. They started the company doing uh, spots for children's TV and uh, a famous character in the UK called Morph. It's kind of the British equivalent of Gumby, yes. I always say. <laughs> yes. And he's a little guy that morphs into different shapes. And it was done for kids' TV, started in the 70s. And, and then they expanded and into commercial TV commercials and short films and and they took me on in the 19, early, like mid-1980s, and I brought with me Wallace and Gromit. Your latest film is Early Man, featuring a caveman, Doug. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's about this caveman called Doug and his pet hog called Hognob. He, he, he's in this tribe, which is led by his chief, Bobnar, who's uh, holds him back, really. He's, he's, uh, he's got issues to do with the past where he's just doesn't think his tribe are that great. He loves his tribe dearly, but he just doesn't think they're capable of anything. Whereas Doug's kind of the opposite. He's a, he's a can-do caveman and he, he doesn't see limitations. But one day, their beloved homeland, their valley is taken from them by this evil kind of Bronze Age force. They're land-grabbing and, and they throw the this bunch of Stone Age people out of their valley and uh, they are... They're powerless against this bronze force and armed mammoths and what have you. And the only way Doug can find to fight their, for their valley back is he discovers that their religion is this game called soccer. And uh, he challenges the evil Lord Nuth, who's the sort of uh, governor of the Bronze Age world. He challenges him to a match. Lord Nuth is just so proud and also sees the potential for the entertainment value of playing against cavemen as as a way of making a lot of cash out of pride as well. He takes on this match, he, he takes on the wager and, and decides to take on Doug and his tribe at this game of football. Now, Early Man, you also wrote. Tell us a little bit about the idea for the story. Where did it come from? Well, it's been buzzing around my head for, for a few years really now. And a lot of these a lot of these ideas I find come from fairly simple beginnings. I, I keep a, a sketchbook by me nearly all the time and I doodle a lot. And, you know, for example, um, chicken run. Chicken, I always loved chickens, for example, and, and my sister had pet chickens. And I, I was sketching a chicken, sort of digging its way out of a, a chicken coop. And, and that was that was that idea. It was, it was the great escape with chickens. And I remember sketching Wallace with 
his ears changing into rabbit ears. For, I don't know why I was drawing it, but that seemed to have legs and, and became uh, Curse of the Weir Rabbit. And with this one, I was I think I was sketching cave... I've always loved the idea of cavemen and making a sort of prehistoric film. I think I drew a caveman with a club, and, I was, and that immediately started to make me think of what if cavemen invented sport, you know, like uh, baseball or rounders, and then it became soccer, and just the whole tribal nature of... I'm not really a football fan, but uh, I love the idea of it, and, and I'd watch the big matches and, and, you know, the World Cup and get quite into it. But it just struck me that I've never, you know, I've never seen a, a prehistoric underdog sports movie before, and, and that sort of appealed to me. So our protagonist in this film is Doug, mm. the soccer-playing caveman. <laughs> what was the genesis of Doug's character and what led you to Eddie Redmayne for his voice? Right, yeah. I mean, we, you know, you play around with the main characters for quite a while, you know, in the writing process and, you know, how old, how old are they? Uh, who are they? You know, what are their flaws? You know, and his pet pig Hognob came about... Which the, you voiced. Uh, which I voiced, yeah. <laughs> Accidentally, really. It wasn't planned that way, but I, I was doing like a scratch recording for him and, uh, yeah, I got voted in as Hognob. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Doug took many shapes and forms to start with, but then Eddie, very kindly, he was my first choice. He came in to test for Doug and asked me how old is he and I, I wanted him to be a sort of dishevelled teenager who was hyper-enthusiastic but not confident and uh, Eddie just fitted that so well and he suddenly transformed into a 15-year-old and gave me that voice and gave Doug that voice which I thought worked perfectly for me. And... Oh, ow. What strange magic is this? <coughs> Hognob, you stay. I don't want to attract attention. You know, that's what he is. Is a is a guy who he's wide-eyed at the wonders of the world and doesn't know why we have to be, why we can't do things, you know, why why things aren't achievable, and and because he's in a a tribe where the chief thinks in a, a slightly more blinkered way about the past, stuck in the past. Right. Now, your movies are all stop motion out of the studio. Would you describe Doug's look and how you create the puppets for these movies? Yeah, well, we've, I guess we are known for our stop motion, uh, particularly our clay animation at Aardman. And uh, by the way, I mean, Peter Lord and David Sproxton, since the beginning, they, they always have had a more diverse vision for, you know, of a, you know, keeping up with technology and keeping abreast of, of things. And but I, I've always been a, a clay man myself, and probably always will be. And they are too. But we we try to keep the com the company sort of diverse, really, with different directors and creative people coming in. Yeah, I mean, part of my attraction was the, the sort of because it was cavemen. This also the primitive nature goes with the territory of of the clay, and uh, I wanted to create kind of really funny and stupid cavemen with low brow. And uh, I also don't want to apologise for the technique. You know, it's clay. I don't mind seeing the fingerprints. And many animators would shy away from animating fur fabric, which which I, I was very keen on having, both for the hair of the cavemen and the women, 
but also the fur clothing, because from the earliest days, if an animator has to animate a puppet that has fur, they'll they'll keep touching it, and and it'll have this what they call boiling. It'll it'll keep moving. You, you'll see that if you if you've seen Isle of Dogs, you know they've gone for fur a lot on the dogs, and it, and it vib- sort of vibrates around a lot. Personally, I like that. I, I feel it's a sort of a a charm to it and it reminds me of the old King Kong and Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen films. Right. But now you do have effects in it and, for example, when they have the soccer match, you have a a huge crowded stadium, which you didn't do all in clay. So tell us a little bit about creating that. Yeah, and really over the last few films, we've we've sort of embraced technology where it helps us and where it saves time. But in this film, I really wanted to keep it in the stop motion area and with that feel so even in the we did we used a lot of effects digital effects because in this was a more expansive epic kind of universe of prehistoric terrain with volcanoes and smoke and explosions and lava but even on uh, you know talking to my uh, dp dave alex Ridet, we very much wanted to keep it like it was made back in the era of Ray Harryhausen. It did yeah. very much. It had that texture, that, that right, feeling. Right, right. So even when a volcano erupts, we shot real pyrotechnics and, and, and just maybe enhanced it and helped it with a few digital effects. And, and same as you say with the, you know, we have a, there's a stadium, a football stadium full of like 10,000 spectators. And obviously, we you know, it would have been very expensive to, to make 10,000 puppets and animate them all <laughs> by hand but we wanted to keep the feeling of uh, we kept, on principle we kept the, the main character animation as stop motion and clay on the faces particularly on the hands ironically people tend to think the cgi is cheaper and quicker but we couldn't actually afford really high grade high rendering of, of cg when we used it so we could only use CG like for the crowd when it was out of focus or, or a long way off so, so that people couldn't spot the fact that it was a, a lower sort of rendering quality. But that helped really. I always think that limitations are a strength. You know, you use them to help you and it helped us to focus on the main characters, which were stop motion. There's also a side theme. There was a woman who wanted to play soccer and she wasn't allowed to because she was a woman. Talk a little bit about that story point. It just seemed like an interesting kind of aside, you know, sort of a B story or or whatever to the main plot to have Guna. I thought it would be more interesting for that character to be a woman because in Europe, you know, football, soccer is predominantly a male sport. I know it's bigger as a women's sport here, isn't it, in the US? But it's becoming bigger in Europe as well. It wasn't really for outside motives. We just felt it was more interesting in the film if the the person who knows more about the whole game is a woman and she's got this issue about not and uh, she's uh, you know idealistic and and really wants to kind of do the thing she feels gifted at and but isn't allowed to. Felt an interesting way to go really. This. It's good. Hi. And she's going to help us win the game. Why would she do that? She gets to play on the sacred turf in front of thousands of fans. Glad to be on board. So, what formation do you normally play? Um. 4-4-2 or 4-3-3? Who's your sweeper? Um. Do you man mark or play zonally? Um. We just kick the ball about and chase it. 
Was it a happy accident or was it planned that the film would come out in a year when the FIFA World Cup was also being played? Well, it, it was kind of because we couldn't quite time it. We didn't know how to time it exactly because you never, there's lots of unknown factors, but it was in the end it worked out. I think a happy accident, yeah. I'd have liked America to have been in the World Cup. That would have probably helped <laughs> with I, the release. I think they would have liked that too. <laughs> Do you have a favourite scene and what was it? Oh, gosh, yeah, a favourite scene. One of my favourites, which I had from... Well, there's a couple, really. The opening is one of my favourites, actually, because it was very ambitious and uh, very much a tribute to Ray Harryhausen. And the opening being where you see the dinosaurs. Yes. It's a kind of a prologue to the story where we see how football got invented, soccer, and uh, how primitive people were fighting and even dinosaurs were fighting, people were fighting. And it's a tribute to One Million Years BC with the dinosaurs. And I like that you clarify that that's taking place near Manchester. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Yes. Well, the way I used to pitch the idea was, you know, it's cavemen inventing football. It's early Man United. And uh, that was the title to start with. But we couldn't use that. You know, Manchester United are a massive brand. And, <laughs> but we used the gag later in the film, we, but we couldn't write it on screen. So, yeah, the animation was very complex and uh, had a big, long camera track throughout the, the whole landscape pulling back, revealing things, and we had to do that in about three different passes on different sets, using a lot of green screen, and we couldn't... I mean, we couldn't afford all the puppets we needed, so we had to shoot twice... We shot it twice so that we could use the same puppets again, uh, just dress them slightly differently. <laughs> but, yeah, and I, I also, I guess, probably my... Actually, probably my top scene, really, is when uh, Doug's pet, Hognob, has to uh, massage Lord Newth in the uh, wash tub, in the hot tub. And Lord Newth is our antagonist, oh, that's voiced right. by Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, and he was brilliant. And actually to get that, um, you know, when he's he's in the bathtub, he's in, he's in the hot tub being massaged and the uh, hognob's there doing like chopsticks on his shoulders. And Tom, when he was reading the script, was trying to get that warble in his voice, you know, kind of, uh, you know like as if he's being massaged while talking. So I stepped in and said, why don't I do, why don't I be hognob and <laughs> massage your shoulders? <laughs> he was laughing so much we couldn't record to start with. But, uh, but that is the actual take we used is of Tom doing that is actually me pummeling his shoulders. <laughs> he walked up to my wife at the premiere and said, uh, you're a very lucky lady. <laughs> and how did you find Tom for the part? Oh, yeah, he was great. I mean, I, I, I saw him, first of all, on the Graham Norton show in the UK on the BBC, and uh, he was doing... He's very good at mimicking voices, and, and he was doing a very good Robert De Niro impression in front of Robert De Niro, who was another guest, actually. And I was looking around for who might who might play Lord Newth, and, and, and that gave me the idea, you know, maybe I could approach him. And, uh, and he was really, it's amazing, you know, when somebody you really want, you know, to play one of your characters says yes. And, and that was the same with all the cast, really. Yeah. For those who haven't seen the movie, let's describe Lord Newth. He's a pompous buffoon, really. He's not a very dark villain. He's, he's a kind of climbing, he's a middle manager. He wants to go somewhere, really, and gain respect in, in the Queen's eyes and... Um, Queen of FIFA. <laughs> Queen of FIFA. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he's played by Miriam Margulies. But yeah, he's this pompous idiot, really, who's 
wields great power. And he's really trying to make money, really. That, that's his, his ambition out of the, the beautiful game. And, and there's Guna, who's more of an idealist, who loves the game for real and sees how it's all been corrupted. So it's a, a little bit of a metaphor. A caveman playing the sacred game? Bring him here. How dare you set foot on our allowed ground? You took our ground. Our home. That? Listen, you Stone Age put, you have no home. Your kind are finished on this earth. Now take him away and kill him. Slowly. Now these movies take years to make. When did you start working on the film? Yeah, I mean, altogether, I mean, the, the films take probably from beginning from, of writing right through to, to the end, about four and a half years, I would have said, four to five years. I mean, the beginning is all... I'm sat down with mainly Mark Burton, who was the main writer on it from the beginning, and we were looking at cards on the wall, really, trying to figure out plot and storylines. And as soon as we start to become happy, we go to screenplay or treatment and then screenplay. Then uh, maybe find out there's a lot that's not quite firing properly or getting notes in from our own colleagues or Studio Canal who were partnered with. So we maybe have to go back to cards on the wall and, and then, then we start storyboarding and as we're happy, it, the storyboards go into the edit machine so you do a story reel, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Right. But we do like scratch voices and scratch music just to see how the story and the characters are shaping up and the gags. We go round in circles with that for a couple of years <laughs> and uh, as soon as we're happy with any scenes that, that can get locked off, we start shooting because the, the whole idea of the reel is that we don't want to shoot stuff that doesn't get used. We can't afford to do that. So your team is working on building the puppets and the sets while you're working on the story reels. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And I like to have a hand in the design of the characters myself, a strong hand, and I'll do final tweaks. And so there's like a look to the whole thing. And so, yeah, we start shooting and each scene, not in any order particularly, but, you know, we may run into some story problem even while we're shooting so we have to maybe re-record with the actors or some scenes get chucked out and some shots maybe but not many so it's a fluid organic process really as well or you you find that the finished effect is different to what you'd imagine so you have to make some adjustments. Or, but because it's stop motion and you're shooting frame by frame, when, when you go back, it's a big task because, I, I yeah. mean, how, how many seconds of animation can you do? Oh, yeah, a... and I work with the most amazing creative powerhouse, really, of animators, model makers, set builders, and they all know what they're doing, and I've worked with many before, and I, it's nice that I don't have to say a lot and they get, they get what you mean. That's the beauty of having had all that experience but yeah we have like 35 animators on the production each on a different set so we're shooting on 35 or 40 different sets every day you know different lighting setups so getting around those those people is a mega task each animator might shoot two or three seconds a day which i know to anyone outside it sounds not much but I, animation terms that's flying really you know, sometimes if we get a minute done in a week, that's really cruising. You know, you know, we'd open a bottle of champagne. We talked about a few of the characters already, but do you have a personal favourite? You've got to love them all, really. I mean, even the, the evil characters, you've got to love them. Otherwise, you wouldn't put them in. You know, you wouldn't 
especially in a comedy. I mean, I like them all in different ways. I, I loved Doug. I feel an affinity with Doug. He's, he, he's sort of shy, but full of beans and full of enthusiasm. He's a reluctant hero. He, he leads from the back. But I enjoyed being Hognob as well. That was quite something. The real Bronzio football team, were they based on any particular people? Well, no, and, and um, I think we had to steer clear of being too much like anybody, really. So there were somewhere sort of equivalents, but a bit different. Uh, there was one that looked a little bit like uh, Wayne Rooney on our team, on the, on the Stone Age team, but he didn't speak like him. He wasn't meant to be him. But <laughs> there's a, a famous football player... Um, Bobby Charlton, who's one of the great heroes in the UK in football, and he, he's got a Newcastle Geordie accent. So we had one who looks a bit like him with a Geordie accent. Well, you had a lot of fun material for people who are football or soccer fans, mm. but you also have a great story that even if you don't, it's a very heartwarming story. Oh, thanks. Thank you. I mean, we, we wanted to... I didn't want it to be a, a football or a sports movie that then didn't appeal, you know, to all the non-football fans. At the same time, wanted to be enough enough there, you know, for the football fans. So there's a, there's a lot of football fans worked on the film that gave me ideas and, and contributed ideas and references. Yeah, so hopefully you'll, you'd enjoy it either way. You also have a pigeon who sends messages between Lord Knuth and the Queen. How did that idea surface? You know, in a Stone Age film, you you've, and you've got uh, influences like the Flintstones where they just do all kinds of... How do the Stone Age have technology or the equivalent of uh, modern technology? We thought, how do they communicate? Do they use smoke signals or, or what? And, uh, yeah, this idea came up of this pigeon, which we refer to as the message bird. And he is like a... The Queen has trouble using the message bird as if it's like a... Uh, a cell phone or, or, you know, modern technology. And uh, it was great fun. And, and I'm not sure if people know here Rob Bryden, who's a, a great comedian in, in the UK. And he did the voice of uh, the message bird, mimicking the Queen, who's Miriam Margulis. <laughs> Rob actually played about four characters in the film. He also played the two football commentators. They're based on commentators known in the UK. But, yeah, we had great fun with the message bird. I don't know how to describe it really, but he's mimicking. He appears in Lord Nuth's office and you speak into his ear and he mimics the person that's speaking. So it's a bit like watching uh, somebody on Skype, I guess, or, or FaceTime. Delivering message. It's a message bird. Go on, make it. <clears throat> Hello? Hello? How do you use this message bird thing? It's the queen. Just speak into its ear, ma'am. It will mimic everything it hears. I, mean, I don't even know if I'm holding it that... Testing? <coughs> Testing. <coughs> Nooth? Nooth? Perhaps she's heard about the game. Oh, of course she hasn't heard about the game. I've heard about the game. <gasps> now, you, you mentioned during the interview the Flintstones... Were there other movies or TV series or books that also inspired the work? Yeah, well, I, I like to put in references. I've always have done, you know, movie references. I guess there are, there's one million years BC at the beginning. But I guess other references, you know, when we enter the stadium, I was very much inspired by the film Gladiator and wanted to sort of do a, 
very much a nod to that and to create that sense of being in the stadium for Doug, that fear, the roar of the crowd and the excitement and and the drama as as well as but with comedy as well. But also there, there were other little references, you know, like it's a bit more subtle, but when the scene in the middle where uh, Doug and Hognob and Guna go running and jumping out of the window and grab the toilet paper and go uh, falling down, that's right. die hard for me. That's die hard where he grabs the fire hose and jumps out the window. Yeah, there are a few other references. When I, there's Buster Keaton, you know, falling down the... You know, Doug falling down the bleachers, you know, in the stadium. Right, in the stadium. Um, I guess that's a... It made me mindful of Naked Gun when um, there's somebody, I think, in a wheelchair who goes down and and gets pushed and goes down the steps and falls over the into the stadium at the end. That was always hilarious. So I was a bit mindful of that with Doug falling down and, and uh, I guess, Buster Keaton, really. Will we see more from Doug? Uh, it's a good question, really. I mean, since we've made the movie, I, I mean, not, we haven't really discussed that at all. Um, I've, I've sort of wondered whether there could be a series or something. I'm not sure about another feature film, but and probably wouldn't involve uh, soccer, but I'd love to see them again. The thing is, when you're writing a movie like this, there are so many gags that go on the edit room floor that uh, I feel there's enough enough material already, you know, for something else. But uh, Well, now, Shaun the Sheep is already does have a TV series, and that, I believe, is shown in 160 countries now. That's Yeah, I think that's right. The sequel to the motion picture is set to come out next year. Yeah. What can you tell us about the sequel? Yeah, well, we're currently shooting uh, Shaun the Sheep 2, Farmageddon, aliens are involved, and... Um, <laughs> and space (laughs) yeah I'm not personally working on it physically or directing that's been it's being directed by uh, Rich Phelan and and Will Beecher who've been at Ardman for some time doing storyboard and animation yeah it's all being shot right now and will be finished early next year so uh, I'm not quite sure when the I think it's released in the autumn next year but we're also uh, planning Chicken Run 2 as well and that's all in development and your Wallace and Gromit characters, of course, are loved around the world. Could you tell us a little bit about where they are today and what we might see of them in the future? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I still have to uh, pinch myself, you know, the, the amount of people who who come up to me, uh, both in Europe and while I've been here, just, I, I, you know, when you're so involved with it and you don't ever imagine who's watching or who's who it's going out to, and to have people... I mean, I, I always think it was yesterday that we created first created Wallace and Gromit, but I get 25-year-olds now coming up to me, or 30-year-olds, saying, I grew up with Wallace and Gromit. So I, it's just amazing. And, a, and in a way, a dream come true. I used to... I once saw a documentary on the TV about Disney and, and how it all started with this mouse, and and that gave me this kind of drive as a child to create... I just dreamed of, because I loved drawing cartoons from the youngest age, I dreamed of creating my own characters and that they might be known somehow one day. So it's like a real dream come true. I can't help but keep thinking up more ideas and um, even in my any downtime I'm sketching or uh, creating more, so I'd love to make more Wallace and Gromit films. I'm just not sure if it's a feature film yet or a short film. or. And yeah. Wallace's voice. Yeah, that's... 
an issue, obviously, very sadly, um, Peter Salis, who played Wallace, and such a unique and lovely quality to his voice and such a, a great guy to work with, has done the voice for the last 30 years, passed away last year. There were jobs he didn't want to do, and so so we got... I got this guy in who was a reading artist, really, with Peter on Curse of the Weir Rabbit, and Peter was happy for him to do the things he didn't want to do, like voiceover for GPS or something like that, so boring to do, or for video games and things like that. So so this other guy, Ben, would step in and, and mimic Peter, only on those kinds of jobs. So, yeah, he, Ben really, Ben Whitehead, would probably be our first stop to go to, and I, I think Peter would very much approve, you know, to, to continue the character of Wallace. He's sadly missed, of course. Your characters like Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep are also used for charity in the UK and globally. Would you talk a little bit about any recent initiatives? Yeah, we've um, about 20 years ago, we were approached by the Bristol uh, Children's Hospital to create some characters that could help their campaign to raise money for the Children's Hospital. And um, we volunteered Wallace and Gromit for that job and they were so pleased and it's I think it's really helped. And over the years... We've just done the third sculpture trail this year of, you know, giant sculptures that around the city, all painted by different artists. And people go on the, you know, the sculpture trail and, and they, they... These are sculptures of Sean. Yeah, sorry. First of all was Gromit in the first time. And then we did a Sean the Sheep trail. And we've just done a Wallace and Gromit and Feathers McGraw trail, which has just been this summer and raised about £1.6 million because they all get auctioned off as well to uh, benevolent buyers. (laughs) Now, your company also just went through a structure change. Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, um, I'm so proud of Pete Lord and David Sproxton that it shows their incredibly benevolent nature. That You know, they set up the company in the 1970s. It's worth a lot now, and um, they've decided, in in view of the future, really, and they're not retiring. They've sort of got retirement in mind and what happens to the company. I think they're staying around for a while, but but they've decided to give 75% of the shares to the employees and all the staff and all the people who work at Ardman. So everyone's incredibly grateful and happy, and it's very much in the interests of preserving Ardman's independence and creative drive, you know, the creative centre of the company, and also just with the workers in mind. It's, it's just wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.